Good to see you all. It's hard to hear that, but... Hey, thanks to those of you who put that, uh, whatever you call it, that collage together, or the music, that was really well done. Brian, and who else? <laughs> Emily, and Kaylee. Who are, the people, who are the people here that were actually part of that? Just put your hand up so we can see. Yeah. And Dave, did you stick it together then? Okay. Okay. Well, thanks to Matt as well. That was just, uh, it was a great song and nice, very good to have you do that. All right. Uh, we are... Uh, still in a series that we've been working on since, uh, believe it or not, last September. Maybe you can believe that. You're saying, when are we going to get done? Well, probably a few more weeks yet, but uh, uh, we've done a little detour in Job, but, but Job is also about the God who is here, right? Or the God who sometimes doesn't seem like he's here, uh, even though he is. So, uh, this theme, I just feel, is so important I think it's fair to say that most Christians do not believe in a God who is here. They believe in a God who is there, somewhere, usually at a distance. Uh, I think most Christians believe in what uh, we could call Christian deism. Uh, deism was embraced, you know, by some of the early founding fathers of our country, Ben Franklin, Thomas Jefferson, uh, likely uh, George Washington and, and some of the other signers of the Declaration. For the deists, God is far away. He's not involved in the world. He's the creator, but now the world runs on by its own. Uh, I think that's where a lot of Christians are. And so the effort in this series has been to get us to consciously entertain the idea that God is not merely uh, over there and far away, but God is here with us, and what does that mean? Uh, how do we live out of that reality, right? So, we're still trying to get at that. Today, I want to look with you at uh, this beautiful psalm, Psalm 11, and the, uh, the title, What Can the Righteous Do?, is a question that comes up in this psalm. So, here we go. Uh, here we try to go. Ah, I know what I did wrong, or what I failed to do was to put in this little, there we go. So, Psalm 11, in the Lord I take refuge. How then can you say to me, now notice, this is something is being said to David. It's not what he's saying himself. That's why the quotation marks here. How can you say to me, flee like a bird to your mountain? For look, the wicked bend their bows. They set their arrows against the strings to shoot from the shadows at the upright in heart. When the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? End quote. Now David responds to that. 
The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord is on his heavenly throne. He observes everyone on earth. His eyes examine them. The Lord examines the righteous, but the wicked, those who love violence, he hates with a passion. On the wicked he will rain fiery coals and burning sulfur. A scorching wind will be their lot. For the Lord is righteous. He loves justice. The upright will see his face. Well, what this psalm does is it brings us to deal with the idea of crisis or the experience of crisis. We don't know uh, what the particular circumstances were in David's life that called forth this psalm. Uh, David was a man who lived with lots of crises, I think you would agree, if you read his history. Uh, He was the second king of uh, Israel. Uh, He had lots of people who hated him. There were lots of challenges and difficulties. He knew about crisis. Crisis is a shaking experience. Right? That's why the question uh, or the comment is made to David by, I assume, by his friends, uh, David, what can the righteous do? The foundations are being destroyed. My son is uh, getting started in a business of reclaiming older homes, renewing them and selling them. He's doing pretty well. My recommendation, though, as a non-builder, my recommendation as a non-builder is that he should not purchase this house. (laughs) This seems to me like a house I would call dumpster house. This is ready for the, uh, the bulldozer. The problem is uh, the foundations are moving and the house is about to come down. Now this is what crisis does to us. Huh? Whatever David's crisis was, there were people around him who cared for him who said, David, the foundations are shaking. Now, you don't have to think too far to realize that there is a similar sense that many of us, maybe most of us have today, right? We're facing a worldwide crisis. Not just nationally, worldwide. And the feeling is, at least the feeling I have, maybe you too, that the foundations of Western culture, as we know it and have experienced it, are shaking. Things are sliding and may never get back again to what they were. Economically, Things have been shaken in an extraordinary way, and that's going to go on for who knows how long. A lot of businesses have closed down that aren't going to come back. 
A lot of people's retirement has disappeared. Crisis, the foundations are shaking economically, politically. Extraordinary upheaval. Our politics has gotten mixed in with the question of how we deal with this crisis. And politics, already topsy-turvy, have only gotten worse. Educationally. What are we going to do? Dave, I don't know how you sleep. What is education going to look like? How many colleges already at risk are going to close and never open again? What is happening to our kids if they have to go to school every other day? All those questions, right? What about families? With everybody together at home 24-7. Probably the moms ought to talk about that more than the rest of us, huh? But that's, that's crisis, folks, isn't it? So we know about this. We, we have this feeling. What kind of world are we in and what is ahead for us? What kind of world are we going to pass on to our kids or on to our grandchildren? Crisis. And to crisis, there are certain predictable responses. It took me, I think, about three minutes to come up with the rest of this list, right? So, fear. Obviously, fear. That's very present in David's situation when... uh, when his friends say to him, David, you need to get out of town. Flee like a bird to your mountain because it's too dangerous. Here, the foundations have been eroded. Uh, fear is, is powerful around us. That's not a judgment on anybody. That's, that's just the reality that we live with. huh? How about frustration? And anger. Uh, I kind of guess that this guy's just zoomed out, friends. Uh, I'm zoomed out myself. Uh, if you want to ask me for a, another Zoom meeting, I'll, uh, I, I will consider it. And I will say, I won't say anything nasty to you. But I'm not necessarily going to do it. Because... Because you know, if you've been on it, right? That was me those Sundays when we couldn't meet here, right? I was ready to kill the machine. But a lot of us, see, are not just afraid, we are frustrated. Moms are frustrated because the pools are closed and they can't get their kids out of the house. We're Frustrated because we go to the store and we got to wear masks. And we're frustrated, frustrated, frustrated. And a lot of times that then leaks out in anger. Just a general sort of climate of anger and resentment that we're in this situation. 
and then that can move quickly to despair, depression, and hopelessness. Is it ever going to get better? Will we find a vaccine? What can we do? I'm stuck. And, and what we get is, uh, I was talking to uh, Jack, you and I were talking just this week, that both of us are sensing a spiritual depression, that it's harder to pray. It's harder to be in the Word. I call it even oppression. It, it feels like a heaviness. It feels like, I've been telling some folks, it feels like everything related to church and ministry is just harder. Is it really harder? Well, I don't know that it is necessarily, but it feels harder. That's part of what happens in crisis when we feel threatened. We shouldn't be surprised that we sense any of these things, right? And then there's a feeling of a need to escape. It's, uh, you know, it's right in this psalm, isn't it? Where David's friends say to him, uh, verse 2, or verse 1, you say to me, flee like a bird to your mountain. David, get out of Jerusalem, go down to the, the fortresses in the wilderness of En Gedi and hole up for a while. But get out, get away, flee. In uh, Psalm 55, David says, yeah, that's what I feel like doing. Another situation where he's in difficulty, he says, oh, that I had wings like a dove. I would fly away and be at rest. You get in touch with that? I can. And what happens here, this is where we have to be careful, what happens is that when we feel this oppression and the danger and the fear and the frustration and the need to escape, what that can lead to is escapism. Right? Where we cultivate ways to get away, and if we can't do it literally, then what do we do? We do it in our minds. We escape in our minds. Now, not all of that is bad. I am reading through a series of mystery novels. <laughs> uh, and that's part of an escape, right? It gets my mind thinking about other things, and I get engrossed in a mystery novel that's set in the middle of the 19th century. So I'm a you know, I'm 150 years away from you guys for a little while, for a little while. And I don't think that's bad. A good book, beautiful music. These can help us to get a, a mental release and some distance from this thing. But there's a dangerous side to escapism too, isn't there? There's the, uh, 
the escapism which simply wastes our time, which fritters away our energies, which doesn't really renew us but drains us. There's the, you know, the escape of online shopping. Spending money, right? Or uh, how, about the, how about the escapism of pornography? I haven't seen any figures, but my, my, my guess is if you could track the use of pornography against this pandemic, you would see a, you know, a, a quantitative leap. Escapism. Dangerous for us. We need to be aware of it and, and to say, what's going on uh, in me? Well, that's the crisis. <laughs> David responds with confidence. Psalm 11 is one of those early psalms of David, and, and David, for the most part, is at his best early in his life when he's under difficulty. Actually, crisis tends to bring out the best in David. And that's why these early psalms are, are so uh, encouraging to me. David is marked by confidence. His confidence is not in himself. That would be foolish. His confidence is in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God that we earlier in our studies uh, noticed names himself as Yahweh. And Yahweh is the name for God that is all through this psalm. David says, Yahweh is my refuge, verse 1. In the Lord I take refuge. In the Lord I take refuge. So how then can you say to me, I have to get out of town. I have to run away. I have to escape. He says no to escapism, but he says no not on the basis that he is David the great warrior, but that he is David the man who trusts in Yahweh and finds God to be his refuge. This is his foundation. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Well, what the righteous can do, what David does, is to reaffirm that the foundation has not slipped and is not going to slip because the foundation of the righteous is rooted in God who is our refuge. Paul says, nevertheless, the foundation of God stands sure. Having this seal, the Lord knows those that are His. The God who is here knows you. You are not a a number registered with the federal government. The cosmic Lord of the universe knows your name. He knows your circumstances, as he did David's. And David finds strength in that. He finds his confidence in that. Yahweh is his refuge. 
But he says also, Yahweh is on his throne, verse 4. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord is on his heavenly throne. Which means, biblically, we're back to this theme of the sovereignty of God. The God who rules all of the world. Remember the old song? He's got the whole world in his hands. He's got the little bitty baby in his hands. He's got you and me, sister. He's got you and me, brother, in his hands. That's that's very basic theology, but it's such important theology, isn't it? Because it's basic. It is foundational. This foundation has not slipped. It will never slip. The foundations of Western culture may slip. They may crumble. We don't know that. But the foundations of God's throne will not slip. They never have. David knows that and wants us to reflect on it as well. And then he adds as well that God, Yahweh, is the omniscient judge. Omniscient meaning all-knowing. The Lord is in his heavenly throne. He observes everyone on the earth. His eyes examine them. His eyes test them. His eyes test me. They test you. Because he's the God who is here. He's not remote. He hasn't forgotten about us. He's not surprised by the virus. He's not intimidated by the virus. And he has fully the ability to ensure that his people will always endure right to the end. Next week, I think we're going to talk more about this idea of God as judge because it's a very important idea. We'll come back to that. So, David then, in the midst of fear and slipping foundations, has this confidence. It seems to me then that this psalm comes as an invitation to me and to you. From the God who is here with us. What might that invitation look like? Well, let's spell that out for a few minutes, shall we? It is first an invitation not to fear. As David says, I take refuge in the Lord, he invites us to do that with him. To take refuge in God is to leave our fears behind. Now, practically speaking, how do you do that? How do you learn not to fear? Well, I guess first we have to actively cultivate our faith. Faith is confidence. Faith is trust. It's not just belief. It's trust. So we cultivate faith. 
Oh, yeah, here's the disciples. Back on the lake. And the storm is up. And Jesus is sleeping, and they wake him up. Master, don't you care about our situation? And what does he say? He doesn't say, I thought you guys were better navigators than this. I'm a carpenter, I'm not a fisherman. Why don't you do your job? No. He says, where is your faith? They have a faith problem. Even with him in the boat, they have a faith problem. So so the fear issue that rises up within us and the other things, you know, the frustration, the anger, the depression, and all the rest, what do we need? We need to cultivate faith, which means that I become a person who turns back to God regularly and on daily, maybe an hourly basis, and say to the Lord, Lord, I've got fears about things that I can't seem to control, but, but I'm a person who trusts you. I trust your wisdom. I trust your guidance of all events. And so I want to consciously place myself in your care. So it's not, it's not just a theoretical thing about faith. It's not just saying, well, I believe that Jesus died for me and I believe God's in control. Because we can do that with an idea in our mind of a God who is there and not here. And we need a God who is here. And we need to live out of the reality of a God who is here. So cultivate faith. This recommitment to God and bringing him our fears, our anxieties, our depression, all that stuff. Secondly, I think this is pretty important too. Pay attention to what you're paying attention to. Now, you may remember I pulled that straight out of Kurt Thompson's fine little book, uh, The Anatomy of the Soul. It's, It's a very insightful treatment of how our soul and our brain relates. And he says the important thing is not just to pay attention. We need to pay attention, particularly pay attention to God, but we also need to pay attention to what we're paying attention to. And the reality is that I struggle with paying attention to what I'm paying attention to, and so I get distracted. Here's one practical suggestion for you to think about. Pay attention to how much time you're spending with the media. Many Christians are destroying their peace, their joy, their faith because they're paying too much attention to the media. The media is calculated to create anxiety. It's calculated to do that. So I I suggest that for some of us, it might be a good idea to practice some fasting. Fasting in this sense, not necessarily fasting from food, but fasting from media. 
Consider, for example, this might actually help you to pay attention to what you're paying attention to if you were to practice a 24-hour fast from all media. What would happen? You would begin to find out how many habits you have that just are not healthy. How much time that, if you're like me, you can end up scrolling through your phone. Seeing all kinds of things that are not helpful, that create more anxiety, more fear, more frustration. Or you come home and you're tired and you sit down and what do you do? You turn on the television and you listen to the 6 o'clock news. Or worse yet, you listen to the 11 o'clock news and then you try to go to sleep on that. One of the reasons why through this pandemic I sent out a number of letters that had compline prayers in them is because I think those prayers are a counter to what many of us are doing. We are feeding off of stuff that creates anxiety. Compline prayers are for just the reverse. They are to settle your spirit. If you notice, they all finish with that beautiful ending. The peace of all peace be mine this night. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. What are you paying attention to, friends? What am I paying attention to? Note to self, pay attention. And then, this is, uh, I suppose, not directly in the psalm, although indirectly, I think. Give thanks. Paul says, in everything, give thanks. Or to bring it home to us, in every pandemic, give thanks. Of course, he doesn't say, give thanks for every pandemic. You don't have to give thanks for every difficult situation, every crisis that you face. But in the midst of crisis, pay attention to what God has done and is doing and will yet do. Pay attention and give thanks because God is at work and God is here and you're not alone. Give thanks. Paul Uh, Paul made that a practice in his life. And Scripture encourages that. And whatever our circumstances, especially in a pandemic, we have to give thanks. So, do not fear. Take refuge in the Lord. And then... Seek God's face. I take that out of that last verse. The Lord is righteous. He loves justice. The upright will see his face. That's a goal that Scripture puts before us of seeing God's face. And it then we can then turn that into a practice as something we want to do. <clears throat> I love this uh, verse in Psalm 16, verse 8. David says, I keep my eyes always on the Lord. With him at my right hand, I will not be shaken. 
See, the David in Psalm 11 who says, I take refuge in the Lord. So how can I listen to you when you say flee away? That David is a David who has cultivated this practice of looking to the Lord. I keep my eyes always on the Lord. Not on the house that is crumbling. What is David paying attention to? He's got his eyes on the Lord. Well, you say, how do you do that practically? We're busy people. We've got all these kinds of things happening to us. Well, uh, here's a suggestion. How about cultivating the practice of meditating on God's character? David, David is doing that in Psalm 11, isn't he? Lord is my refuge. The Lord examines everybody. He knows exactly what's going on. The Lord's going to bring judgment. He's going to vindicate the righteous. He meditates on God's character. So, do you do that? As a practice, how do you, and how do you do it? Uh, our men's group, back at the beginning of the COVID thing, uh, we continued to meet together on the Zoom and uh, we were talking uh, one day just about our, our time. And uh, uh, Bob Stinsman here was saying that he's, he's been working, but almost all the people in his company have been laid off. So he finds work to do, but he's got a lot of empty time and just didn't know what to do with it. And so we talked about reading Scripture and reading through the Psalms. Do you know... If you read five psalms a day, in a month you read through the entire Psalter. At least it used to be that way on the old math. I, I don't know how it is on the new math, but uh, you know, 150 divided by five is 30. So uh, at least it used to be. So Bob started reading the psalms and using that time to focus his attention on God. So. Reading scripture is a good way to meditate on God's character, or there's good helps out there. You know this classic book by J.I. Packer, Knowing God? When I taught the doctrine of God at the seminary for years and years, that was always a required text, because it's a classic, and it's still in print. I looked on Amazon to make sure. In fact, now it's even in an audio book, so those of you who don't like to read, you can listen. And it's another way to help yourself to meditate on the character of God. Think along with some of these great uh, giants of our faith. Uh, A.W. Tozer, The Knowledge of the Holy. Great, great book, challenging book. Lots of good stuff to read out there. And then be mindful of his presence. So let's come back to it again, see? The God that we worship, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Moses and the prophets, the God of David, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus, the God of the apostles, he's a God who is here. He's not just there. He's here. And 
we have this possibility of cultivating mindfulness. We have a possibility of going through our lives, our day-to-day routine, and being fully engaged with them, but at the same time, in the back of our brain or in our heart, wherever this happens, be in conversation with God and say, Lord, I want to partner with you. I want you to multiply my effectiveness. I want to see life, my life even, I want to see it the way you see it. I want your perspective. That's part of this idea of seeking God's face, I think. This direct personal contact. But it has to be cultivated friends. It has to become a habit, and it's especially hard for it to become a habit because we have so many bad habits. We have the habits of indulging our fears, of living in our anger and frustration, of suffering under our depressions. Those become habits of life, and it's going to take effort to break out of them, but it's not impossible. It's not impossible because you have the strength to do it or I have the strength to do it. No, it's possible because the God of our fathers is here and who wants us to succeed in all of that. Remember, Yahweh is Emmanuel, the with us God. The God who is here. So, take that with you this week. Reflect on it and cultivate your walk with God. Keep your eyes always on the Lord because He's at your right hand. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this uh, time together. We thank you for the encouragement of your word. Thank you for the chance to gather, whether we're gathered here in the auditorium or we're gathered at home. May your blessing rest upon your people. May we be conscious of you uh, this week. Uh, may May we give over our fears, our frustrations, our depression, our sadness. And may we trust in you. And now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God his Father and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with us all this day and forevermore. Amen.